0: Those of you in Elfers Hall, thanks for joining us. Those of you underneath the canopy, thanks for joining us. Those of you at home, thanks for joining us. Those of you in the sanctuary, thanks for joining us. I think I covered it all. Well, um, life is weird, is it not? Life is weird. Amen. Amen. felt some hearty amens. I had an amazing time going on vacation this summer, earlier in June. My family had a chance to go on vacation, and part of the time I was with my dad and my son doing some fishing up in the Boundary Waters, and then for the second half of the time, I was at a camp with my entire family. My entire extended family went camping. We had an amazing time out on a lake, just enjoying the time together, but if you know, if you've ever been on vacation with a group of people, there's some communication that has to go into that ahead of time to set it up, right? Who's bringing what? Where are we staying? How are we getting there? Kind of working out all of those details, and a part of our preparation for this, my dad sent out a text to the family encouraging us with what a great time it was going to be for all of us to be together, and he said, let's leave all like political and social discussion behind, some of you probably think, great idea, good advice. Others of you are probably like, why didn't you guys engage that when you were together with a family? But the reality is because even though many of us, my, my family, we grew up together and, and on the surface we're, we're very similar, even within my family there's some diversity on some of those things. Is that a surprise to you that a family has some different opinions on things? It's not, right? because you've all been to that family meal or that family vacation and you're just like, I hope Uncle Bob doesn't say his thing, or I hope I'm not asked about this, or whatever it is, you know how, how diverse conversation can become really divisive, how, how, how diverse perspectives, how diverse thought can become really divisive. The reality is diversity has the chance to either deeply strengthen our relationships and partnerships, or diversity has the chance to divide us. Diversity, it's a good thing. It's a, it's a thing given to us from God, and it has the chance to deeply unite us in partnership for the gospel or as we've often seen it, has the chance to divide us. And so this morning, that's what we're going to look into. As we continue walking through the book of Philippians, we're almost done with the book of Philippians. Next week is our last week in this book. And as we get towards the end, we're going to look at what it means to agree in the Lord. Now, as we walk through this book, we've seen over and over again just how diverse this church is. Remember, we're reading this letter written by the Apostle Paul to a church in Philippi 2,000 years ago. And if you want to see the origin of this church, you can look at Acts chapter 16 and see the diverse makeup of this church family. And today, as we look at this text, we're going to see, we're going to see how this diversity in the church family created a potential division. And how the Apostle Paul encourages the church to agree in the Lord. And how, to, how, how they can work through their diverse thought, their diverse backgrounds, their, their, their diversity and find unity. Find peace. Find agreement. Not that they agree on everything, but Paul calls them to agree in the Lord. And so this morning, that's what we're going to look at. And before we get into the text here, I just want to share this tweet with you that somebody from our church texted me this week. So the top half is the tweet. The bottom half is their personal commentary. I blocked some of it out so you can't tell who this person was because there's a clue in there as to who they were. So they sent me this tweet. It says, prediction, in the next two years, there will be a large exodus of pastors from the pastorate. Every pastor I talk with is exhausted and to a degree frustrated. Theological and ideological differences between pastor and parishioners is increasing. It's not sustainable. In church, I can't tell you how true that seems to me. As this person from our church sent me that text, I'm like, that prediction is right on. Every pastor that I talk to is sensing the same thing. And it's not just pastor and people. It's people. In the church, it seems like our differences, our diversity is getting more pronounced. I I don't actually think it's increasing. I think with COVID, I think with the racial tensions, I think with everything that's been happening in the last couple months in the world, I think our differences are just being highlighted more. I think there's a spotlight being shown, and we're starting to realize just how diverse the church is. Not just the church, your families, your friend groups, your neighborhoods, all of this, right? There's a potential in this diversity for a great divide. I want you to know that that I don't want that to be me. You are a loving church. I feel very supported by you and I feel like we have this healthy dialogue and we can work through things together. But I do think that text, that tweet is incredibly true. And it's not just between pastor and people. It's between people. I've had conversations over the last couple weeks that has just revealed this to me. How diverse the backgrounds, the perspectives, the opinions in just our church family alone are. And and, and then I love, thank you, if you're watching or here this morning, the person who sent me this text, thank you so much for this text. If you want to encourage your pastor, that's a way to do it. Just say, hey, I'm praying for you. This made me think of you. I'm praying for you. And so, oh, let's all say thanks to this person who took the time to encourage me. But what I want to do as we go into this text this morning is to keep in mind just how diverse we are. The people sitting next to you in the pew the people who you are in community group with, the people who you do a little awkward chit-chat at the door with with a mask over your your face. Hopefully not over your faith. Let's not mask our faith, but we can mask our faces. That's okay. And masking your face isn't a sign that you're masking your faith, just so you know. Some people may want you to think so, that you're compromising, but putting a mask over your face has nothing to do with your faith. Um, That's a side note. I'm on a tangent now. Let's bring it back. That that's even a sign though of just how diverse the church is, right? Diverse opinions about masks. And that could lead to division. Or it could strengthen our partnership. And so this morning we're going to look at Philippians chapter 2, uh, chapter 4, verses 2 through 9. And as we do, we're going to see the path for a diverse church to agree in the Lord. And so I'm going to ask if you could stand as I read Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 through 9. If you don't have a Bible, pull it up on your phone. We usually have Bibles in the pews, but we took those out for COVID reasons. So we encourage you, bring your own Bible on Sunday mornings or get a Bible on your phone and pull it up. I want you to see God's word here through the Apostle Paul to the church in Philippi. Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 through 9. The Apostle Paul writes, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Lord Jesus, we thank you for these words. God, we thank you for inspiring the Apostle Paul to write these words to the church in Philippi and preserving this word for us to read and to learn and to grow from 2,000 years later. Spirit, just as much as you inspired this text, I pray that you would open up our ears in our hearts, in our minds, to hear from you this morning. We pray these things in your name. Amen. You may have a seat. Well, again, the big idea for this morning as we walk through this text is that we're going to see a path for a diverse church to agree in the Lord. The first thing that we're looking at here is Paul making an appeal for this diverse church to agree in the Lord. And so before we even dig into the appeal that Paul's making here in verse 2 and verse 3, let me just remind you, again, we're not going to go back and look at Acts chapter 16 this morning, but let, re, let me remind you of some of the diversity of this church. In Acts chapter 16, Paul comes into Philippi and he starts a church out of a prison. Okay, so he is imprisoned by the, by the Roman Empire for preaching the gospel. And as he's in prison, him and Silas are singing these gospel songs and, and the prison walls come tumbling down and the prison guard, the one who is there to watch them, the one working for the Roman Emperor Empire, he, he becomes a Christian. And so in this church, you have the, the police officer and the wrongly imprisoned Paul worshiping together. Could there be some conflict there? Is there any conflict between the, the police officers and the citizens in our culture? Here's another piece of diversity in this church. Timothy, who is part of this church, he's biracial. He's a Jewish mother and a Gentile father. Any possibility for added diversity and division there. We have Lydia, a rich seller of purple, a well-to-do lady who possibly has two different homes, one in Thyatira and one in Philippi. And we have a demon-possessed slave girl who was set free from her demons. So this underage girl who had been trafficked and used and abused and had lived her life in poverty and this well-to-do businesswoman. Any diversity of thought or opinion or perspective there? Probably. And so this is the, the diversity of this church. And throughout the book of Philippians, Paul addresses a couple other people, and we don't know the entire scope and spectrum of the church. We don't know the full extent of its diversity, but we do know that it was a diverse church, just like our church, just like most churches. There's some diversity of thought, of background, of perspective, Lord willing, of skin color and cultural expression. Because the church is the body of Christ, and it's, it's to be made up of all people, all tribes, all tongues, all languages, all cultures. And the more diversity that you have, the more possibility for division, right? And so that's what's happening here in, the, in, in this church in Philippi. There's, there's all of this diversity, and diversity either has the opportunity to grow us and to strengthen us and to deepen us or to divide us. And there's this potential divide happening in the church. We don't know what it is, but look at Philippians 4 verse 2. Paul says, I entreat Odia, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Syntyche, it's believed that this name came from a, from a Greek goddess. So probably some pagan roots, some... some, some Pagan family worship there in the church, so different perspective, different background. Sytache has become a Christian out of this pagan background, and we don 't know what the what the division is between Euodia and Sytache, but we know that there's some division. Paul, in his letter to the church. In the church to Philippi, he says, I entreat, or I encourage, or I exhort, Euodia, and I exhort, or I encourage, or I I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. There's some sort of division. We don't know what the source of division was, but it was the result of, of, I'm, I'm sure, of their diversity of thought, background, culture, understanding. Earlier in the book, the, the Judaizers were telling the Christians in the church, the Gentiles in the church, that they had to become circumcised. They had to become more Jewish in order for them to actually practice their faith and to become good, good, God-fearing people. They had to become circumcised. Maybe that's part of the division. Maybe it was a theological division. We don't know what the division was, but we know that there was a division. And Paul here appeals to this church Entreat, encourage, exhort Euodia, and entreat, encourage, exhort Syntyche to agree in the Lord. And so, what's he appealing to them to do? Agree on their politics? Actually, they didn't really have politics back then. They, they didn't have the freedom to vote. But, but agree on, on how they engage politics as Christians? Agree on how to handle the issues of their day? Agree on whether or not they could eat meat sacrificed to idols. Agree on whether or not Gentiles had to be circumcised. Agree on what? We don't know the division, but Paul here, notice he's not encouraging them or exhorting them or entreating them to agree on the particular. He, he's, not, he's not calling them to be, to be uniformed in their thinking. He's calling them to be united. Their agreement is in Who? give me some feedback. He's encouraging them to be agree, in agreement in who? The Lord, right? So church family, let's keep in mind, there's going to be many different things that we disagree on, especially with a diverse and a grow, increasingly diverse church. And the goal to work through that is not that we would agree on all the secondary issues of theology, of life, of practice, of personality, of political opinion, or whatever it may be. And oh, if you don't think it's bad, if, if you think it's bad now, just wait until we get closer to the election. This is, this is just going to be a nasty couple months. In culture, in church family, let's not allow that to creep into God's family. Thank you. I love the feedback. It's going to be a nasty couple months. And what the world needs to see from the church is not unanimity on how we think and how we vote in and and, and our discussions. They need to see unity in the Lord, agreement in the Lord. And so Paul is encouraging the church to stand united, to find their deepest sense of agreement and unity in Jesus. Now, there's a ton of places we could go from there, Right? But but we need to start there. That's foundational. He says, yes, and I ask you also, true companion. The, the Greek word there for true companion is yoke fellow. It's like this ministry worker that Paul had been doing work with. We don't know the name or who he's talking to here. It's a clue to somebody in the church who, he, he's like, hey, would you two help, the, would you, yoke fellow, help these two work it out? There's some kind of disagreement that could cause division, and I'm encouraging them through my letter to the church to work it out, and, and you my, my, uh, my underground servant, would you help them work it out? And he says, these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together. See, that's so much more important than this little squabble that they're having, this disagreement that they're having. They've labored side by side. They've been united in the gospel, in the good news, with me in Philippi. People are coming to know Jesus The church is growing because of the the, the labor of these women and their unity. And now something is damaging that unity. And so work on it and clement one of the church leaders and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are written in the book of life. And so there's the appeal for this diverse church. It's to agree in the Lord. It's not to agree on all the secondary theological issues, all the secondary practical issues, all the secondary political issues, all the sec- whatever it is. It's to agree in the Lord. That's the appeal. Then secondly, we're going to see the path for a diverse church to agree in the Lord. So the appeal here that Paul is making to the church is agree, agree in the Lord, be united in the Lord, find your find your unity in Jesus. He's appealing to to them 2,000 years ago. And oh, how applicable it is to us today. He's appealing to us, church family. Find your agreement. Find your unity in Jesus. The church of Jesus Christ should be the safest, most united force on the face of the earth. All people, all tribes, all tongues, all colors, all languages agreeing in the Lord. Now, that takes a lot of work. That's not easy. Doesn't mean that there's not going to be potential. There will be disagreements. But what we see here is in this diversity of the church, we can't let those disagreements divide us. And so Paul now gives us a path for how a diverse church can agree in the Lord. And he's going to give us six steps to take on that path. So as we walk through the rest of this text, this is a famous passage from Philippians I mean, a lot of you can probably quote it. A lot of you have probably memorized this. Rejoice in the Lord always and again I say rejoice. Yeah? Some of you know that song? Great. Man, you're a lot quieter, masked. Some of you know that song. Rejoice in the Lord always and again I say rejoice. All right. I just wanted to sing it again. (laughs) I never get paid to sing, so take an opportunity there. Rejoice in the Lord always. Let your reasonableness be known to all. Be anxious about nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. If you grew up in the church, you know these verses Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is lovely, if you've ever been a teenage guy or girl struggling with lust, you've probably been told that verse. Think about what's pure and right and lovely. We know these verses. But I don't think we often study these verses in the context of a potential division. Because we, we, we I mean, verse 2 isn't very quotable, Right? I entreat you Odia and I treat Sintiki Syn- how do you even say that I had to listen to biblegateway.com reader to figure it out To agree in the Lord. That's not a quotable verse. But the next couple verses are quotable. And so oftentimes we will separate the context of what is happening here from the content of the verses that we like. And we need to keep the context of what's happening here in mind as we look at the content of these verses. And the context for what's happening is a potential divide because the church is made up of diverse people with diverse backgrounds and diverse ways of looking at things. And in this diversity is a great potential for divide. And so Paul comes at this and he them, agree, encourages them to agree in the Lord. Then he gives us a pathway to find agreement in the Lord. So let's look at that pathway. Six steps to take. And there, there's more. This is just what is here in this text. The first one is to remember where you belong. Diverse church family, remember where you belong. Look at what Paul says in verse 3 here. Yes, I ask you, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Where you belong and where you're headed is more important than where you came from. Where you came from matters. History matters. Looking back and trying to understand ourselves and, and some of the divisions in our world matters. It's important, but if we are going to work through diversity and find unity, our, our posture as a church family is to look forward to where we're going, to the presence of God for all of eternity, singing with one voice, worshiping the lamb who was slain, the king of kings. That's where we're headed. And to remember our current standing, that your name is written in the book of life, Christian. Your name is written in the book of life. You belong to God. You have been chosen and adopted as a son or a daughter of God, and he has placed you into his family, and you have this diverse family of brothers and sisters to whom you belong, and God is our father. This is a family And and families can disagree. Families can have different perspectives. But families, especially God's family, must work it out. They must agree in the Lord. And we do this, first and foremost, by remembering where we belong. We belong to God. We belong with God. We are His. We are bought with a price. We are chosen. He encourages them to remember that their names are written in the book of life. And so, church... As you engage hard conversations, find your identity in God. You are a chosen, loved son or daughter. And then as you disagree with someone else, you know what would do you a lot of good? To think their name is written in the book of life. If this person that I'm disagreeing with is a Christian, their name is written in God's book of life. And it might be right next to Mine. And we will be worshiping him for all of eternity. And so we need to work this out. Maybe I need to humble myself and I need to listen to them because they are an equal co laborer co-heir with me in the gospel. Their name is written in the book of life. My name is written in the book of life. We have a common bond. There is some ground for us to be united upon. First step to take as we're working towards unity as a diverse church. Second step is to rejoice in the Lord. Verse four, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. And I just wrote down even this morning as we were singing the second song. One of the lines that we sang was, whatever may pass and whatever lies before me, let me, let me be singing when the evening comes. To rejoice in the Lord always doesn't mean that you're always rejoicing in your circumstances. If you're living through hard circumstances, the Bible would call you to lament. It doesn't say to just put on a happy face and to rejoice. It calls you to lament things that are worth lamenting. But at the end of the day, we rejoice in who? Again, the Lord. We agree in the Lord and we rejoice in the Lord. This means that regardless of what you're going through in life, we rejoice in God. We find hope in him. We, we have an eternal perspective, not a temporary perspective. We find our rejoicing in God by having this eternal perspective where we receive God's grace and we find that the Greek word here is Cairo. It means to lean into God's grace, to delight in God's grace, to receive God's grace. And so again. Some of you, you hear the word rejoice and you're like, I don't feel like rejoicing. That's okay. If your emotions are causing you to lament, to mourn, you don't have to fake it. You don't have to put on a smile and say, I rejoice in the Lord, but inwardly you're you're angry and you're sad. No, the Bible would call you to lament, but then it would call you to remember the grace of God and to find your hope in the grace of God. Like the song that we sang, whatever may pass or whatever lies before me, you don't have to find rejoicing in your circumstance. Whatever may pass, whatever lies before I me, mean, the circumstances may be less than ideal. They may be worse than less than ideal. They may be awful. But let me be seen when the evening comes. It's grabbing to this truth. It's rejoicing in who God is, and it's clinging to Him. It's lifting your head and celebrating because you have hope. Again, look at the context, chapter three, verse 20. He says, "But our citizenship is in heaven." So again, the first point, remember where you belong. You belong in heaven, your citizenship is in heaven. It's not here on Earth. So engage this earth, this world as God calls you to, as seems right, as seems wise. But this isn't your home. You're passing through. You're a pilgrim. You're a sojourner. Your citizenship is in heaven. And your name is written in the book of life next to your brothers and sisters of whom you may disagree. So remember whose you are. Remember where you stand. And then rejoice. Because your citizenship is in heaven, and from it you await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform your lowly body to be like his glorious body. You can rejoice regardless of your circumstances if you remember this truth, that there will come a day, as Revelation 21 says, where there will be no more tears or pain or suffering anymore, for behold, I have made all things new, says the Lord rejoice. Find your hope. Find your joy in the Lord. The third step to take on this path here is it it follows it. Verse 4 is rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. The next step, the third step, is you guessed it, to let your reasonableness be known to everyone. To be reasonable. I reworded it for the PowerPoint here. Be tolerant of others. Why did I do that? Well, because what do you think when you hear the word reasonable? We all think different things. You can do word association with any word, and we're all going to have a little different idea of what it means to be reasonable. When I read, be reasonable, I want other people to be reasonable. And their reasonableness is to see something the way that I see it. Amen? you are probably all more mature and you don't read it that way. I read it that way. Let your reasonableness be known to everybody. And, and reasonableness is one, one acceptable translation of the Greek word here, but other translations use gracious or gentleness the, the idea of this word here, it, it, it's, it's really to be tolerable towards others. It's to be tolerant of others. It's to be gracious towards others. It's to be gentle towards others. I, I put tolerant in because that's a word that is more often used in our culture than reasonable. Well, reasonableness is used by reasonable people as they interpret what it means to be reasonable, right? Right? For some people, being really expressive in worship, raising hands, dancing, shouting, that's reasonable worship. I wish we had a little more of that in our church family. But but for other people, that's unreasonable worship. Reasonable worship is you stand still and stoic and you think deeply about the words that you're singing and don't express yourself. You see how this idea of reasonableness can can be interpreted to fit your own desire or your own culture or your own opinion or your own background or your own standard. And so really what Paul is getting at here is, is he's saying let your reasonableness or your tolerance or your graciousness or your gentleness with other people be known. Don't be overly, don't be overly strict. So what he's saying? Don't be overly dogmatic. Don't be nitpicky. Theologically, politically, socioeconomic, whatever it is. Worship style, dress code, whatever it is. Paul is saying, don't be unreasonable, be reasonable. Don't be judgmental, be patient. Can you imagine in a marriage? Some of you have probably walked through this. But can, can you imagine an overly strict spouse who's always criticizing every little detail of your life? who's expecting you to believe all the things that they believe or to listen to all the things that they say. Here's an example. It's a bad example. puts me in a bad light. I went for a run last week, and I went through my backyard, and I had these compression socks on, and, and burrs got all over these socks, all over. They, they won't come out. And so I took these socks off, and I laid them by my back door a week ago. They're still sitting there. Sorry, Brittany. She's been so tolerant with me. She's hardly said a thing. Now, I should just pick them up. That would be the right thing to do. But can you imagine if everything, the, the, first, the first thing that she said in the morning when we woke up was like, hey, you gonna deal with those today? You gonna deal with those? She wants me to do that. But I have experienced her grace. She has been tolerant. She, even this morning as I was just reading and praying through the sermon again, I looked at them there and I thought, I'll do it later because I've got something more important to do. Prep for my sermon, right? And my wife has been so tolerable with me. She's not being overly strict and nitpicky saying, hey, if those aren't up off the floor by the end of the day, they're going in the garbage. Now she could do that. Maybe she should do that. There is a time and a place for her to do that. And we have had those types of conversations. But in any relationship, you know how necessary you are for somebody else's grace, for somebody else to be gentle with you, for somebody else to be not overly strict with you, but flexible. That's what Paul is getting at here. In the midst of this conflict between Euodia and Syntyche, part of the steps for this diverse church to find agreement in the Lord is for them to have a little bit of flexibility with one another. This could mean theologically even. Why do you think there's so many denominations in our world? Because we are not good at being tolerant of other ideas, other experiences, other perspectives. We're not great at being gentle and gracious. We're not good at not being overly strict. Humans are good at being strict. Saying this is how I like things, this is what I think, this is what I believe, and if you want to do life with me, you better conform to how I do things, how I see things, how I want things done. And Paul here is saying, if a diverse church is going to grow in unity, you've got to be reasonable with one another. You've got to be tolerant of one another. Again, this isn't to say that there's never a time and a place to have discussions and to figure out, is there a right way or a wrong way to think about things? But I, I think that the American church specifically doesn't need a correction on that. I think it needs a correction on, maybe we should be a little slower to pass judgment. Maybe a little less strict Maybe we can be a little tolerant of somebody else with a different idea or different views. Can you imagine a, a friend of mine right now is a discipling a new believer? Somebody that they just led to the Lord recently, and this person has a long list of things that don't match up with God's standards, as we all do, Right? But this person just became a Christian, and so there's this long list of things that they don't know about the law in the word of God. And, and the person discipling them said, you know, I was going to, over this coffee with them, with them, I was going to point out all these different things that they need to change and start thinking and stop doing. He's like, I think I'm just going to take it slow and let the Lord kind of convict them and lead them. I'm going to, I'm going to tolerate some of their life decisions for a season and just see if God convicts them and maybe I'll point it out when it seems right. That's being tolerant. That's being reasonable. And if we're going to grow in unity in the midst of diversity, church family, we have to be tolerant with one another. Not overly strict, patient, loving, gracious, flexible. Extend that to others and be extremely glad that others are extending it to you because oh how you need it and oh how I need it. Amen? Amen. All right, next step. As we move on, the path to unity and agreement in the Lord. The next one is to remember the presence of God. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Verse 4. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Verse 5. The Lord is at hand. Where is he? He's at hand. He's at work. He's in your midst. He's in your presence. And so as you're disagreeing with somebody or as you're trying to find unity in the midst of diversity, remember the presence of God with his people. How would I talk to you if Jesus was sitting right next to me? How would you talk to me if Jesus was sitting right here? And yes, Jesus had his times of rebuking and getting angry and flipping over the money tables and calling people out. But I think far too often we forget that God is present with us and that we are siblings, brothers and sisters of one another. And and how would we talk? When my children get out of line with each other, you better believe that I let them know it. When I'm present, when I see it. God is present. God sees us. The Lord is at hand. And so when we get out of line with one another, God is there. And how do you think a loving father would respond to his children if they are bickering or if they are slandering or if they are bad-mouthing one another? He doesn't take kindly to it because he loves you as much as he loves the person of whom you disagree with. He died for them just the same way that he died for you. And your job is to not convert them to see things your way. Your job is to be united in the Lord. And so remember the presence of God. Fifth, pray and give thanks. This is one of the most quoted verses in the book of Philippians, maybe in the entire Bible. The Lord is at hand. Therefore, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Where does anxiety come from? comes from not knowing. It comes from not knowing the future, not having control. Anxiety and disagreement comes from not being able to control the other person, not knowing the outcome of the dispute. And here, God is saying, don't be anxious. Instead of being anxious, instead of worrying about trying to control things, instead of worrying about manipulating the outcome, pray. Bring it to me. That's God's invitation for us, is to actually take our anxiety and place it upon him. Isn't that amazing? You ever use that phrase, like after you've met with a friend or a counselor or a pastor or somebody, and you've just kind of verbally vented upon them, and he said, oh, it feels really good to get that off my chest. That's God's invitation to you. Get it off your chest. Put it onto me, for my shoulders are broad enough to handle your anxieties, your your anxieties. Yours are not. Yours are not. Mine are. And so, put it on me. That's what prayer is. It's bringing our questions. It's bringing our fears. It's bringing our doubts. It's bringing the the awareness that we can't control the future to God and saying, God, this is your mess. Would you fix it? Would you clean it up? Would you take it off my shoulders? And you do that with thanksgiving. Everything through prayer and supplication, that's request, that's petition. With thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. God, here's what I want. I'm bringing it to you. God, thank you for what you've done. Thank you for what you're doing. Here's what I don't understand. I want to understand. I can't understand it. God, would you take it? Give yourself a pass. The ability to verbally process with God, whether that's out loud, whether it's internally, doesn't really matter. Process with God. That's what prayer is. It's conversation. It's thinking, praying, requesting, laying at the foot of the cross, your burdens. Don't be anxious, but in everything, through prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And and what's going to happen? You're going to figure out how the future is going to go? You're going to be able to control the future? God's going to tell you what's going to happen next? No. Look at verse 7. And the peace of God the shalom, the wholeness, the lifting of the burden, you getting it off of your chest, the peace of God will surpass all understanding. You will actually release the need to know. That's what it's saying. The peace of God which surpasses understanding. It's less important for you to know the future and for you to know the outcome than it is for you to place your fear upon God and he will exchange your anxiety for his peace and you may be in the dark about the future. But you'll have God's peace. That's how we walk through diversity in in unknown times. What's going to happen in November? Who knows? Who cares? Place it upon God. It's okay if you care. All right, please don't hear my little comment there, as it doesn't matter. It's okay to care. You should. But don't get anxious about it. What's going to happen if. Put it on God. Trust Him. Don't expect those in your spheres of influence to see it the way that you see it, and to vote the way that you vote, and to act the way that you act. Find your agreement in the Lord. Place your anxiety, your burden upon him and receive his peace in exchange. You don't have to know the outcome. Trust the sovereign God for the outcome is in his hands whether it's good for you or bad for you. God often uses the nations of the world to discipline us to bring out Christ's likeness. Christ's likeness. So keep that in mind. Lastly, the last step to take on the path to finding agreement in the Lord is to think about and do godly things. Look at how Paul ends this here. He says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is anything excellent, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things have a positive outlook on life. It doesn't mean you have to sugarcoat everything. And I always put on this fake idea of positivity. But he's saying that you have this hope. Your citizenship is in heaven. Verse 20 of chapter 3, your citizenship is in heaven. Verse 21, your body will be transformed to be like his glorious body. There is a future. There is a hope. God has promised to take your anxiety from you as you bring it to him and exchange it for his peace. And so think about what's right and true and lovely and pure and noble. Don't dwell on the bad all the time. Don't don't look at all the chaos around you, all the chaos and sin in your own soul and beat yourself up about it all the time. And maybe God wants to bring some conviction and there needs to be a season of mourning and lamenting, but don't live there. That's part of the truth. Thinking about what is true might, be, might, might mean that I'm dwelling on my sin for a season. I'm repenting of my sin. I'm, I'm, I'm wearing the heaviness of my sin or the sin of the world for a season. But another piece of, of thinking about what's true is that's been taken from me. God in Christ has removed my shame. He's removed my guilt. I am no longer guilty. I need no longer walk around with, with, with shoulders filled with the burden of shame. I can think about what's honorable, what's just, what's good, what's right, what's lovely, what's commendable. If anything is excellent and worthy of praise, I'm going to praise my Father who has forgiven me of my sins. I'm going to praise the God who is working all things out for good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. And that might be through some suffering, but I'm going to think about him. I'm going to praise him. And as we think about him and praise him, we also do godly things. We think about godly things, and we do godly things. Verse 9, he says, What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. So last week we talked about finding some people to imitate. Same thing here. Find some people in your life, some Christians, some older or younger brothers or sisters in the Lord who have some imitatable Christ-like character. Imitate them. And Paul says, Practice these things. As we think about and do godly things, as we practice godly things, as we put it into practice, the peace of God will be with us. We will live life in step with God for his glory, for our good and the good of those that we do life with and the advancement of his gospel. Amen, church? We are so incredibly diverse. I love it. It's that one day I have a conversation with somebody from our church. I'm not going to get into any any specifics, but this week this happened. I had a conversation with one person one day and a conversation with another person the next day. And these people both said they talked about the same two issues on completely different sides. And they're in the same church, brothers and sisters of one another. And I, as a pastor, I'm like, (gasps) Diversity praise God. And now in that, let's find unity in Him. Let's be strengthened by Him. Let's do life in Him. That's why we take communion every week at Park Community Church. Now, now I, to be honest with you, I've debated if we should stop doing this for a season because these little packets are terrible, right? Let's just be honest with it. The, the, the wafer tastes terrible, And it's just weird to take communion in this little self-serve packet. So I thought, should we even just stop for a while? But as I pray and think through this church family, the reason we do this is to be radically reminded that we are united in Jesus. That you worship in a very diverse church family. And we are striving together, brother and sister, to find agreement in the Lord like Paul appeals to us. And so one of the ways that we find our agreement is to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And so take the packet in front of you. If you have placed your faith in Jesus, this is here for you as a reminder of the forgiveness of your sins. The night that Jesus sat with his disciples before he was killed, they were sharing this common meal and Jesus passed the bread around to them he so said, this symbolizes my body broken for you. As often as you're together, eat of this. Why did he do that? To remind them that they're united in him. And he broke the bread and he gave it to the disciples and they ate together. Let's eat. And after they had eaten, Jesus took the cup And he passed it around again to his followers. Showing them how to find unity in himself. And he said, this this cup symbolizes my blood shed for you. It's, It's a reminder of the forgiveness of your sins. My blood is the covenant. A new covenant. A covenant made by my blood. The forgiveness of your sins. And so he passed it around. And so brothers and sisters, let's take this, drink it being reminded that our sins have been forgiven. And that's what unites us. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for living a perfect life, for coming into a diverse world with a potential for so much division. And Jesus, you experienced that to the point of death. There was an outcry, a crucifixion, because people couldn't figure it out. Their religious agendas, their political agendas, their personal agendas, their desiring their own kingdom got in the way. And Jesus, you embraced that diversity which created division to the point of you being crucified so that you could build a new people, the church, the ecclesia, the called out people of God to find unity in you. And so, Jesus, we cling to you. We thank you for who you are. We thank you that you are our living hope. Amen.